Good afternoon. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you so much for the book of Daniel. Please, would you help us this afternoon to enjoy this story? Father, please, would you help us to enjoy it for what it tells us about you? And Father, please, would you help us to respond to you rightly because of it? Amen. Amen. Have you ever watched someone make a remarkable statement to express their point of view? When I was at university, um, in the first couple of weeks, we got told, basically we had a few of these kind of meetings with previous students, and we got warned about just one lecturer. They said, whatever you do, don't be late to this one lecturer's lectures. Now, obviously, as freshers at university, we listened very carefully. In the first lecture, everyone was there five minutes early. And we were all waiting, sat there waiting what was going to happen. What was it that meant we had to make sure for this one lecture, we had to be there early? And um, we were sat there waiting. Um, the lecture hall was basically, if the, if the seats went up like this, uh, down at the front, the two um, doors came in at the front. So you had to literally, if that was the uh, speaker speaking there, you'd have to walk past them and walk up and into the, um, into the lecture hall. So we're all sat there waiting. And the lecturer comes in one side of the doors, shuts the double doors on one side, walks over to the other doors, shuts the double doors on that side, goes to the middle, like nothing's happened, just carries on speaking. Now, we thought, okay, fair enough. It'll be pretty obvious if you're late to a lecture like that. But didn't think really that much more of it. But then, six months into term, when things had settled down a little bit, everyone was a bit more lax, um, enjoying university, um, people had forgotten about this warning from um, the previous students. And both doors were shut, slammed shut at the beginning of the lecture, bang on the, the hour. And there was this one guy tried to sneak into the lecture just a couple of minutes late. And um, we could all see, sat there up in the, in the back of the lecture hall, this door creak open. The lecturer stood there, turns, sees the door just sneaking open, walks, paces towards him, looks him in the eye from like this range, audible for the whole lecture hall, no, you're late, points. And the guy just turns, walks out of the lecture hall, and the lecturer slams the door and carries on. He made a remarkable statement to show that he was in charge. This afternoon, as we look at Daniel 3, we're going to see three remarkable statements. And they're making a statement about who is in control the question we're thinking about as we look at it, who's in charge when the heat is on here in Daniel 3? So I wonder in your life, if you struggle to see what God is doing, and if he's in control in moments, in situations of your life, as we come to Daniel 3, this text really speaks into this question. So first, verse 1 to 15, we're going to see the call of the culture. It's a remarkable statement of idolatry. You might remember last week, if you were here, um, King Nebuchadnezzar had this random dream of this statue built up by different materials. The statue's destroyed. And um, just have a look, actually. Verse 47, I think it is. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar finishes that chapter by saying, 
Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. So it's remarkable that just a few verses later, King Nebuchadnezzar is building a statue that sounds very familiar. Just have a look there at 3 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. So there it is, it's southeast of the city of Babylon, the world's superpower at the time. It's in a massive public place, it's eight stories high, all the world to see as they come to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is making a statement. A statement that says, I'm in charge. I'm God around here. But he doesn't just leave it at that, he summons everyone to see what he's done. Do you see that list? Brilliant. <laughs> he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to see the dedication of the image he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of that image. What's he doing? He's just getting everyone to come and see this statement. Repeatedly we get this verse, did you notice it? He set up, the king set up, the king set up, the king set up for himself. We get it all the way through the first couple of cha chapters of Daniel. And that's exactly what's happening. The king is setting up for himself. The king is making a statement. He's setting up for himself something in God's place, something to be worshipped. It's a statement of idolatry. Tim Keller most famously writes about <coughs> idols, saying they're this. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So you have a look at verse 4 to 6. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. See, King Nebuchadnezzar is making this remarkable statement. It's the call of the culture of everyone that lives in that land. It's bizarre, isn't it? just a random massive big gold lump and they're to come and give it God's place in their life to give this huge statue the place that God deserves and the threat is, have a look at verse 6 whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace well, what, what are the idols of our culture? They're the things that in the same way people give the place that God deserves. Sure, there's no 90-foot statue that we're forced to bow down to. But our culture does point us towards idolatry, and so do our hearts. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar, we want to rob God of the glory that he deserves. We carry on the story. The, the astrologers can't believe what's going on. They've picked up that there's three who are refusing to bow down. 
And see, they can't just let it go. They have to snitch on these three. And do you notice what they're referred to in verse 8 and 12? They're referred to as Jews. Do you remember, despite this whole process of being conformed into the Babylonian way, all this process of studying, all this process of being in among the people, being right there, they're still referred to as Jews. That's because their identity hasn't been taken away from them. Anyone who doesn't buy into the culture fully clearly sticks out. It's what we've talked about in previous weeks, about being in Babylon, being among the people, rubbing shoulders, being right there, and yet being fundamentally different. These three, they rubbed shoulders with the crowd and yet didn't conform. When we have a look at our culture, when we think about what's going on, we must realise that the things around us are making unsubtle statements of idolatry. Sure, there's no 90-foot golden statue, but adverts, reality TV shows, friends, workmates, jobs, they will try to convince us that money, status, power, sex, possessions, holidays, houses, they'll try to persuade us that these things deserve the top place in our lives. They'll try to persuade us that these things deserve our hearts to be set on them above God. And that's okay. It's okay that we will hear that voice. It's okay that that's what people around us are saying. But we must know that God wants his followers to be different. So don't think we'll never hear that voice. Don't think we can try and avoid it. But we must know that God wants his followers to be different. Those things don't deserve God's place. They won't deliver on the things that they promise. Will you recognise the idolatry of our culture? Will you rub shoulders in the crowd and yet not conform? Well, as you can imagine, King Nebuchadnezzar is not very happy. Have a look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Well, where is God when the heat is on? Surely he won't just let this idolatry slide. Surely he won't just watch on as these three men who've said they won't bow down, surely he won't just let that go, let them be picked up. You can just imagine the, intent, the, um, the situation intensify. Have a look at verse 15. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. They're given this option again. But you see, everyone's been called round to look at them. They've been called in front, those three. Everyone's watching. See, if we trust the authority of Scripture, then when we look at this story, we're meant to feel what's going on. And as these three men are brought up in front of everybody, the music's going, 
the king's got them on the spot, what's going to happen? I wonder if you've um, ever been in a situation where, um, you know that song, um, we love to sing with Simon, because Simon is our mate, and when we sing with Simon, he sings a song in eight, seven, six, and there's a countdown, three, two, it's horrible. It is horrible, because that moment, you know when the, when the number gets to zero, you are standing up in front of lots of people probably, and what will you do? The pressure is on. And it's a bit like this here. They've been given this ultimatum, will you bow down, or will you go in the fire? The music's blaring, everything's stopped, what will they do? What? will they do? That's the call of the culture. It's a remarkable statement of idolatry and these three men are pressured into it too. But verse 16 to 23 we see the faith of a hidden God's followers. A remarkable statement of allegiance. See there they are on the spot and what do they say in response? Have a look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. What boldness. Just think back again to that song where I stand up. Everything in me is frightened, wants to just get rid of the situation, just wants to make it okay. The last thing I want to do is stick out like a sore thumb. But what do they say? No, King, we don't answer to you in this way. It's a remarkable statement of allegiance. What are they saying? They're saying, we answer to God. It's a statement that says, we trust that our God is in charge, not you. Yeah, it's direct defiance against King Nebuchadnezzar. Direct af af um, defiance against his rule and his power. Remember how that situation has been built up and intensified? You kind of look at them and think, whoa, they must have had nerves of absolute steel to stand up in front of the king, in front of all the people watching on and say, we don't need to defend ourselves against you in this way. It's remarkably matter-of-fact, isn't it? Well, this must come from the fact that they literally fear God more than they fear the king. Is that something we've lost in our lives, in the face of the idols of our culture? Should we have a greater reverent fear of God? And you see what they say, it's remarkably measured. God is able to save us. He might do, but he ultimately will save us from your majesty's hand. See, they clearly trust that God is in control above all things. This teaches us more about what their God is like than what they're like. I was reading um, on uh, a website a couple of days ago um, about Yan Hua. He's a pastor in China. Um, great name. In 2015, he was imprisoned for divulging state secrets. 
a crime it was so obvious he didn't commit. Before he was arrested, he was given this ultimatum. He was pulled up in front of his church um, and his family, and he was given this ultimatum. Never speak about Jesus, or you will be imprisoned. He refused and got taken off to prison. He was taken away from his family, his church, his friends. While in prison, he was repeatedly given this option. Never speak about Jesus or remain in prison. He contracted vasculitis, diabetes. He lost the use of his legs because of infection. You can only imagine how he was treated in prison. All he had to do was say, I'll never speak about Jesus again, but he wouldn't. They interrogated him, threatened him. They brought his family in front of him. They said they'd grind up his body and feed it to pigs to make him disappear. But still, he refused. A few months ago, he was released. And he said, throughout all of the trials, he, he just became more convinced of the size of his God. See, so often stories like this, we marvel at the faith of the individual, don't we? We say, oh, look at Yan Hua. What a man that he could say that. What a man that he could stand strong. But Yan wanted us to see. And these three men show us in their resolute stance that what we need to do is not marvel at the individual and their faith, but marvel at the size of their God. See, we live in a culture where increasingly, like these three men, we'll be put under pressure. We'll be put under pressure um, personally to deny God's place in our lives before our friends at work. We'll be put under pressure publicly, probably on situations of ethics at the moment. At the moment, it's subtle. Increasingly, it's becoming political. How will we respond? See, it's dependent on our view of God and our relationship with him. If we, like these three, genuinely fear God more than the people around us, more than the ridicule of our friends or mistreatment at work, more than missing out on a holiday or not having the latest car, we'll continue to make statements that say, God is in charge here. We'll be able to say, I don't need to defend myself in this matter. We will, we just will do that when he is our God. And it also means that when we genuinely fear what's happening in our life right now, a real struggle, a burden, if we have a relationship with the same God as these three, then we know that he is in complete control. That issue that you're facing at home right now, difficulty with children, or your marriage, or <laughs> um, genuinely hurting or struggling, you can say, look, God is able to save me from this current issue. He might do, but he will ultimately save us. I wonder, will you marvel at the size of their God and pledge allegiance to him too?
You can just imagine how furious Nebuchadnezzar is now. He was furious before. And have a look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. Why does God let him get so angry at them? Where is God when the heat is on? See, we've seen these three men pledge their allegiance to God. Why is God just letting this unfold? Surely God's going to step in right now. We've seen their faith. Surely, surely he won't let his faithful followers suffer. Verse 24 to 30, we see the results of God's plan. There's a remarkable statement of God's deliverance. So what happens? The three go into the fire and have a look down. Look at verse 28 and 29. Sorry, actually, before we get there, before we get there. Neb just can't believe what's gone on. Can you imagine what's actually going on there? They'd have seen them thrown into the fire. Looking in, surely not. What is going on? Neb can't believe there's four people in the fire. Gets everyone around to look. Now, it's easy for us to see, isn't it, in hindsight, that God has saved his people. In, in light of the book of Daniel, God's plan through God's man, as we've seen, God's in control but can you imagine the amazement, the confusion, being stood in the crowd watching on, they're not burning? Hold on. But if there's any doubt about God's deliverance, any doubt at all, have a look at verse 28 and 29 at what King Nebuchadnezzar says. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. It's remarkable, isn't it? That when King Nebuchadnezzar recognises this act of rescue he praises their defiance against him. Do you notice he speaks about himself in the third person? It's remarkable that God uses King Nebuchadnezzar as the mouthpiece for his de deliverance. Just have a look at the change in Nebuchadnezzar. Look, flick back to verse 15. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's verse 15. Verse 29, what do he say? For no other God can save in this way. Well, okay, but why did God let it be so difficult for these three? Why was it so difficult in that culture? Why did God let them get thrown into the furnace? Well, God was always in control and all of that was in his plan to see his people delivered and his name glorified. See, the king's statement helps us to see what's gone on. 
Just look back to verse 29 again. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the name of the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces, for no other God can save in this way. See, King Nebuchadnezzar wants God's name to be honoured. Remarkable, isn't it? That he was set against it through the whole chapter and then the, the thing that he closes with is don't let anyone say a bad name about this God of these three men. King Nebuchadnezzar wants God's name to be honoured. See, God used a king that was set against him to show that God cares about his name. God cares about his glory. And then, as well, God cares about his people to save them. Well, why does God let things happen the way he does? When it looks like God's a laughing stock through the culture there in Babylon, in our culture here today, why is he letting people speak out against him? Why is he letting our culture rebel against his design? Why is God's name going through the mud in our culture today? Well, ultimately we see here in Daniel 3, that God is in control above all things at all times. And he is most concerned with his own name. And while at this moment, it doesn't look great. Just like in verse one, it didn't look great. At some point, his name will be glorified. Even by the people that stand against him. Even by the people that defy him. You might say, okay, well, that's great. God's got it covered on his name. God will be glorified ultimately. But doesn't he care about me now? Well, we see, didn't we, in verse 29, for no other God can save in this way. King Nebuchadnezzar wants to make it clear that God is about delivering his people. Verse 17, um, they seemed to get it just right, didn't they? Have a look back. If we are thrown into the blaze... If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. God is able to deliver us from any event of life. But that's not what we should expect. But he will deliver us ultimately from those who stand against him. How? Well, here... Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are delivered by this fourth character in the fire. Um, there's lots of debate as to who that is. Is it Jesus before he takes on a human body? Is it an angel? Well, people argue very strongly either way. But what's important is that as we know, as we look at this figure, we are to look to Jesus. Because if we trust in Jesus with our life, we will be ultimately delivered to spend eternity with him in heaven. And we can be sure because we see that God's got a track record of delivering his people. <coughs> see, God is able to ultimately deliver his people from the furnace of exile. Those two words, they go together in kind of ancient history, like people would have known as the first readers, as they'd read furnace, they'd have thought exile. 
the Bible describes exile like a furnace when the Israelites are in slavery. Deuteronomy 4 verse 20 says, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. This saving, this deliverance from exile, from the furnace into freedom. Babylon, it, when it, Isaiah 48 speaks of Babylon, it calls it the furnace of affliction. So as the first readers would have read this, they'd have read it in the furnace of affliction and they'd have taken great comfort knowing God is all about the deliverance of his people from exile. For some, that would be a really long wait. And we know that these people would have been delivered in 538 um, in the Edict of Cyrus. And that would have been a, a really long wait for them. But the New Testament we looked at a couple of weeks ago, 1 Peter 2 says, we are exiles. Just as we've talked about Bista being like Babylon, being in a place where we're not really at home, our wait for deliverance could be long. But God will see his people ultimately delivered. How? Last week we saw that we have Jesus, this rock. We have a king who will never be dethroned. That was set against the earthly powers that will crumble and fall. Here we see that Jesus will come to rescue his people. His saving work on the cross takes the punishment for our idolatry and he comes back to life to prove that his work in saving is effective for us. He will come back to bring his people to an everlasting kingdom. In Jesus, we have a king who will never fail to deliver his people. But the alternative to trusting Jesus, the alternative to building our life on him, well, it's to trust in failing kingdoms. It's to face destruction. Just have a look at verse 29. King Nebuchadnezzar makes it so clear. Look, no other God can save in this way. It's remarkable, isn't it? King Nebuchadnezzar himself is saying that. No other God can save in this way. So if that's not Jesus, our King, our ultimate deliverer, then that's the destruction we face. And if you come to this not trusting Jesus, not really knowing who he is, isn't that the kind of king you want to explore, think about, have a look at? Isn't that the kind of deliverance that you want the safety of? We close um, this chapter with verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Some people say, ah oh, well, they were faithful to God, so they got what they deserved, the blessing. Well, should we expect this blessing, success, if we are faithful to God? Well, it's not necessarily what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego expected. And we know it's not ultimately what they wanted, just success. Otherwise, they wouldn't have defied the king and the authorities so regularly. We know it's not what they were aiming at. 
Time and again they stood and said the, that God is their, their authority over the kings. And we know as well that this way into service again is not going to be easy. Just look at their last promotion. What did that bring? So no, we shouldn't expect it. Will you trust God's plan through life's ups and downs and be most concerned with his way in your life? See, as we finish, this chapter is interesting, isn't it? It's a brilliant story that we can engage with. And it's helpful, it pulls together the themes of Daniel, but do you notice? Daniel's not mentioned. God doesn't speak. It's funny, isn't it? But the focus of the chapter isn't the idolatry of the king. It's not Daniel. It's not particularly the faith of these three followers. It's the God that they want to pledge allegiance to because of what he's like. The God that delivers them. It's the God that while seemingly silent through the story is in complete control. The God that is glorified even by the king that's defiant against him. The God that delivers his people and rescues. And it's that God that today, if you follow him, he will rescue you ultimately through his son Jesus. Don't you want to trust this God with the ups and downs of your life? Don't you want to be faithful to him? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are in complete control. Thank you that even when it looks like you are being silent, that you have a great plan. Father, thank you that you are concerned with your name. Thank you that you are concerned too with delivering your people and that you sent your son that if we trust in him, we'll be delivered ultimately to an eternal kingdom with you. Amen.